I am over 70 years old and uh, I'm Jewish. And, you know, my parents were uh, Holocaust survivors who came to the United States. Uh, I was born here and raised here, and I've lived in uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, and I've lived in New York most all my life. So I think I have a little bit of a perspective about what is going on in American Jewry. And um, I, I always like to compare what's going on in American Jewry to diabetes. You may mm-hmm. not agree with me, but uh, diabetes, when it first hits you in the first few years, um, has really no symptoms. I mean, there are absolutely very few symptoms, and the symptoms that there are are uh, certainly not acute or anything. Uh, you may be running to the bathroom a little, uh, but whatever. But over the course of a number of years, uh, it affects. it may affect your eyes uh, if it's uncontrolled, it will affect your heart, it will affect your kidneys, it will affect your feet, it will affect your hands. Basically, it will affect everything and, you know, it will kill you. Uh, fortunately, you know, uh, we live in a, a time when we have a lot of different medications for diabetes, which alleviates some of the symptoms. But that's also part of what I'm trying to say. Uh, intermarriage in the United States is like diabetes. When it first took off in a big way, and I'm not talking about um, the famous uh, Broadway play in the 1920s, I forgot what it's called, when uh, A.B. loves uh, Mary or something, that, at those days it was unusual. But today, intermarriage has reached something like 70% of all marriages involving a Jew um, are intermarriages. Now, um, when this first started, and it didn't start with 70%, it probably started at 20, 30, 40, whatever, in the 1950s, um, no one really saw the, the, uh, what was going to happen at the end of the day. But now we do. Now we do see it clearly. Not only is intermarriage a huge rate, but it's, it has caused the destruction of the American Jewish community. Um, most Jewish communities uh, with Jewish populations under 10 or 15,000 uh, no longer have Jewish institutions. Uh, you know, there are still some synagogues, but let's talk about Orthodox synagogues and Orthodox institutions. Uh, very few of these communities with under 10,000 Jews have um, an Orthodox synagogue. Very few of them um, will have any other communal institutions. Um, to speak of. So this this is bringing about the destruction of American Jewry, and it's also noticeable in the lack of support of American Jewry for Israel, Um, because most of uh, American Jewry in the past, and this is even when I was in my 20s, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, most of American Jewry was 99% backing Israel. Today, you can't say that with a straight face. Uh, I would have to say that, uh, you know, I'm no expert, I'm not a statistician, but I would have to say that uh, a good, over 50% of non-Orthodox Jews in the United States have lukewarm feelings towards the state of Israel. Uh, you know, and some of them disguise it like, uh, you know, anti-Semites will disguise their anti-Semitism by saying, oh, I'm, I, I don't I don't dislike Jews. I just dislike 
the policies of Bibi Netanyahu. It's a good fig leaf. And Jews in America do the same thing. Liberal Jews do the same thing. They despise the policies of Bibi Netanyahu, but uh, they're pro-Israel. There may be a small portion of Jews in the United States who can honestly say that. Most Jews in America would not support the state of Israel, even if uh, the late Mayor Vilner, the head of the Communist Party in Israel, were prime minister. They would not support it because the whole concept of nationalism is foreign in their eyes. The whole concept of a Jewish culture, of a Jewish religion that plays a role more than three days or two days a year is foreign to them. And they loathe it and they despise it. And what's more, all these people have non-Jewish wives. They've got to cater to their non-Jewish wives. After all, uh, Mary and uh, whatever her name is, you know, you just can't uh, make her angry. I mean, she is your wife. So, you know, you, you, hate, you become this person who is anti-Israel and, and supports intermarriage. Because once you have one generation of intermarriage, uh, that's it. You have many generations of intermarriage. Because it's rare to find someone who's intermarried whose children will not be intermarried. Okay. Can I, can yes. I ask you for, for your feedback? <laughs> what, what can I add? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm more interested in, in history of assimilation. The way it sort of like go into describe the waves, the, the waves of um, anti assimilation and how much time it took them to assimilate. You know, I mean, if we take a look at American Jewish history, um, in the colonial period, there, were, there weren't very many Jews. I mean, for all the talk of historians, there were probably under 2,000 Jews in the United States, scattered in many, many different places, New York, Newport, Lancaster, Richmond, whatever. And so there, there are no statistics about that. There are very few statistics about that. Clearly, getting married was not an easy thing in those days. Um, to finding a Jewish marriage partner was not an easy thing. So there was intermarriage, even among the 2,000 Jews. But that's understandable intermarriage. There are 2,000 Jews. There were no Jewish schools. Uh, there were no ordained rabbis in the United States. So there was a level of intermarriage. But if you go further and you go to when the German immigration started, German Jewish immigration started to America in the 1840s, that's when intermarriage picked up to America. And intermarriage in America between 1840 and 1881, and 1881 saw the arrival of the masses of Jews from Russia because of the expulsions and uh, other uh, decrees against the Jews in Russia. Uh, clearly, hundreds of thousands of Jews arrived in the United States. Uh, but from 18, let's say, uh, you know, 1830s to 1880, 50 years, um, you know, the intermarriage rate was probably 100%. Um, it was close to 100% too, because you'd rarely meet today any Jew in the United States who can say that, uh, well, my great grandfather came here in 1860. There may be some, there may be some, but not many, not many. Most Jews today in the United States are descendants of Jews who came here 1881 and afterwards. Of course, there are exceptions. Someone will call me up tomorrow and say, you know, my great-grandfather uh, came here in 1840 and he's, uh, we're all still religious. Okay, whoopee. You know, so it, it happens. But, and then in the 1881, 
is really when the Jewish community in America started. And from 1881 to World War I, intermarriage in America was uh, relegated only to those people who had come before 1881. That was the time period that our German Jews who arrived here in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s were all getting intermarried. Uh, you know, the Lehmans, the Morgenthau's, all these uh, Salzburgers. I mean, uh, that's the time. But after 1881 and after World War One, intermarriage among these Jews who remained Jewish was pretty low, in my opinion. And then these Jews, it was the, the time now for the Eastern European Jews to assimilate, and that's only started in the 1950s. And that picked up steam in 1860s. And then after, there are a few events Wait, here 19, that I... You, 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 you're talking about which century are you in? I'm talking the 20th century. Okay, so it's 20th century, yes. I, I, I skipped a few things. Now, I'll, I, I will go back to them because they're important. Um, what were some of the landmark events that, that gave intermarriage a major push? One of them was World War II, and I don't mean the destruction of Jews in Eastern Europe or any such events. I mean the fact that there were probably 300,000 uh, Jewish boys in the American army. And that's when they all realized that, wait, wait a second, uh, this Italian guy and this guy from Alabama and this guy, they're all human beings and we're not much different than each other. And that's after the war, intermarriage picked up greatly, especially with the, uh, with the housing uh, 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 aid that the United States government gave to veterans. People were moving to all sorts of suburbs, which didn't have synagogues, which didn't have organized Jewish communities, and intermarriage picked up, no question about it. But that was nothing compared what began to what had begun to take place in the 1950s, and that was college. That was sleep away college. And that it has picked up to the point today of extinguishing the American Jewish community. The American Jewish community, um, except for the Orthodox community, and that's a subject for itself, but basically the American Jewish community is extinguished. I mean, I don't believe there's a reformed temple in the country where the majority of membership is either not Jewish or completely intermarried. And, you know, I would even posit that I think a great many conservative synagogues are no different. And what we see all over the United States, and it's not my imagination, is um, conservative temples um, folding and merging because they just don't have enough membership. Uh, and they built these huge edifices, which in the, when I was growing up was called the edifice complex. Um, um, uh, they built huge uh, synagogues, and today they're, 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 they were built for no one. They're empty. They're completely empty. I mean, the synagogue here in New Haven, uh, several of the conservative synagogues have basically fit that category. I mean, uh, they've had to cut back on their staff. They have had to cut back on whatever programming they have because they don't have the membership. Uh, and, because, and why is that? For reasons I explained before, that diabetes, these people had started with intermarriage. It all started with college. It started with the armed forces. That's how it started. It went to intermarriage. From intermarriage, it took a life of its own. Anti-Israel feelings, uh, 
anti-Jewish feelings. I mean, people, I mean, the younger people in the United States, we talk about and we hear and we read about anti-Semitism on the college campus. I don't want to be a jerk and say that none of it exists. But you know what? Most of the anti-Semitism on the college campus, who, who, is, who are the purveyors of this? Jewish students. They hate themselves. They hate Israel. They are the purveyors of this. And I will add, I guess, Arab students. There are a lot of Arab students on this. But, you know, do you think that Joe Smith from Missouri has nothing better to do in the United States than laugh at a Jewish kid wearing a kippah on campus? No, no. I, I live here in New Haven. I've been on the Yale campus a million and one times. I, and I have a long beard and I've never been the subject of of a anti-Semitic taunt by a Yale student, you know, never. These this anti-Semitism that Jewish defense organizations in America uh, play up is caused by other Jewish students. They are the, the big factors in all. They're self-hating Jews. They they are the people who will laugh at Chabad on campus. They will the people who will laugh at Hillel. They will taunt Jewish students. And many of these people don't even know they're Jewish. They're half Jewish. Uh, the girl's name is Tiffany Smith. And the guy's name is is Hunter. His first name is Hunter. He's named after a big tzaddik. And, um, yeah, that that's and that is the destruction of American Jewry. And as someone said about a, something else, it's one thing when you have bad things, and if you realize what's going on around you. But when you're in a state of denial, and you don't even recognize it, or you don't want to recognize this, which is what's going on in the United States now. When I was first arrived on college campus, or when I first arrived in Columbia University in 1972, um, Shema Magazine, Midstream, and other Jewish magazines the chief issue that they constantly discussed was intermarriage. That was the issue, intermarriage. Today, pick up a Jewish newspaper if there are any, and pick up a Jewish magazine if there are any. See if they talk about intermarriage. No, no one talks about it. It's, it's now been recognized as a given, as part of Jewish life, is intermarriage. The Jewish week, before it, uh, thank God, folded in, in um had a big front page story, I remember, probably around 2010. The beauty of intermarried wives uh, teaching their children how to bake challah. I say, take all the challah and throw it in the waste paper basket. There's no halacha that you need braided, braided loaves for Shabbos. Just need two pieces of bread, two, piece, two whole pieces of bread. So the Jewish week gets its rocks off on, on Goyas, Shiksas, Telling, teaching their Goyesha kids how to bake challah, how to braid challah. Wow, wow. Judaism in America will survive forever based on just that act. But all of, all of you know, the reform movement, the conservative movement, these are movements. The reform movement, if people don't know this out there, has abandoned its Cincinnati campus that Isaac Mayer Weiss, the great Sadiq, built personally with the money he raised at the turn of the 20th century in 1900. That's been abandoned. I mean, they're not going to uh, abandon it. It's going to be sold and used for something else, but it's no longer going to be used as a rabbinical seminary. Why? Because no need for it.
No need for it. The reform movement is, is, is it something new? Because I, I haven't heard about it. Pardon? Is is this something new? Because I haven't heard. I can't about hear you. It. Is this something new? No, it's probably a year or two old. It's not new news, but I don't think it's well known. Um, uh, you know, the the United Synagogue of America, which is the conservative movement, is in decline. I mean, that that's no question about it. JT, the Jewish Theological Seminary, um, had to um, um, build. Uh, a huge residential uh, luxury apartment complex on top of its uh, building on 122nd Street, is it? 120th, I don't remember. Um, because they too have no money. Where in the 1960s and 70s, uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of wealthy Jews who um, donated to JTS. Today, wealthy Jews would rather give money to medical schools, to museums, to other such things, like the Alpert Medical School in Brown University, not named after anyone in my family. But, you know, th th what's, what, what we're seeing in our eyes, with our own eyes, to anyone who wants to see it, and anyone can, who can read the tea leaves, is the downfall of all Jews in America, except for Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews are the, will be the last people to go go away because they are committed. In the turn of the, at the turn of the 20th century again, there was a famous Jewish leader here and rabbi by the name of uh, Judah L. Magnus, Judah Leon Magnus. He was born in America. Um, he, he was ordained by the reform movement. He came from a very wealthy family in San Francisco. Um, and he said something very, uh, later he became uh, the head of the Kihila in New York. Which, which is the subject of a different conversation. Um, but Judah Magnus said that what's missing in American Jews, and he was talking about Reform Jews and others, was earnestness. They didn't take Jewish Judaism seriously. They were missing earnestness. And that's where, what separates the men from the boys today. The Orthodox Jews, not all of them, but most of them, take what their lifestyle with a very earnestly, what's you know, what is the halacha, dafyomi, this, that. They take it super earnestly. As a matter of fact, it's probably, except for making a living and making money, it's the second most important thing in their lives. How many non-Orthodox Jews can say that, that their religion, that their lifestyle is the second most important thing in their lives? Yeah, very few, if any, very few, if any, because they lack earnestness. They're not earnest about what they do. I mean, you go to a reform, a conservative temple Friday night, you have a service. It's just, uh, you know, it's just it's just a ceremonial service. It's a ritual. You do it. Does anyone know what's going on? Does anyone care? Uh, does anyone have any interest in the meaning of this ritual? Um, no. The answer is no. I don't know. Well, do you have anything to add or to? What 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 can I add? Uh, I you know, except you uh, no, we're we're living it now here here in Boston is, uh, despite allegedly large community, it's um, there's nothing here. The right, Chabad, I mean, you know, Chabad do their celebration of a destruction of a Jewish community. And that's it. 
you know they they here well, to they as i said the chabad here is to officiate at the funeral yeah that's a good statement you know i i will just add and since i'm i'm really not interested in talking about chabad today but i will add that um in what chabad claims is its mission which is just to touch jews with some judaism and even at one time and at one point maybe they're successful in that but you know to me that is meaningless to me meeting some intermarried jew at the airport and uh, putting on tefillin with him and that's the end of the thing this is a meaningless act They'll tell me that there's a Gemara that says, fine, now, you know, they can debate that with the Rabbonim. I, you know, I, I'm not a Rav, and so, and I'm not a mystic. So, um, but as fact as Jewish continuity, if I can use that term, it's a meaningless act. Uh, so I don't think that, I don't have the statistics, but, you know, we can say this clinically, that Chabad has not lowered the intermarriage rate in any city in the country. Quite the opposite. Here in New Haven, where I, I live now, um, Chabad has been active for around 70 years, 80 years. Intermarriage is booming. It was never like this uh, in 1945 when first Chabad representatives arrived in New Haven. Um, now, 80 years later, it's booming. Everyone's intermarried. I mean, the only people that aren't intermarried are uh, the Lubavitchers, who are not local people. They're people who parachuted in New Haven in the last 10 years because pricing, housing prices in Crown Heights are very expensive and because these are Lubavitch super light people who don't want rabbis around them and don't want to be told what to do. And so they moved to New Haven. Um, and these people, as one um, chassid of a different uh, group uh, said on, on, on a certain blog, um, mental blog uh, years ago that hey, he wrote this to Lubavitcher who was uh, commenting that um, if you want to make sure, buddy, that your grandchildren will be Jewish, join a different Hasidic groups. And I say this about Chabad too, because the dropout rate in Chabad now is very high. I don't, I, I'm not going to offer a uh, number, but it's very high. There's not one Lubavitcher family uh, that doesn't have at least one or more uh, uh, teenagers and older people who have left the fold. Um, and the next step after leaving the fold is intermarriage. And, and there are some who already have, have done it. I mean, uh, there are some, you go on the internet and you meet some people, Lubavitchers, who claim they're Lubavitchers, and some of them even claim they're Gesha, you know, whatever that means today. Um, and their wives are um, of a different uh, race. Uh, than most Jews are. Uh, and so I would have to feel that that's an intermarriage. Uh, and um, so, you know, Lubavitch itself, Chabad itself, has a destiny to meet intermarriage. It's not this generation, and it's not going to be in my lifetime, but in 20 years from now, they too will meet intermarriage. Now, does any other group have this thing? Well, you know, every group may have some people who will eventually intermarry, because I think every Jew in America, it's a problem that faces every Jew in America, even a Satmar, even a Square. But the chances of a Square Chassid living in New Square, having his grandson 
marry um, um, uh, Joni uh, Laporte is very little. But the chances of a Lubavitcher, I say it's uh, 30, 40%, because these people, not only um, are they sent out on shlichus in places where there are very few Jews, and not only that, but every, every weekend, they import thousands, if not hundreds, I don't know if it's thousands, their guru is no longer alive, so they don't have anything to sell. You know, when when the Rebbe was alive, they sold the Rebbe because the Rebbe was an excellent... No, they, uh, what what do they sell now? Nothing. No, they, 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 they sell the Rebbe, which is even better because he doesn't speak anymore. No, can... I disagree with you. I disagree with you. When the Rebbe was alive, it, you know, there are two ways of looking at it. You can say he was a good actor, or you can say, in fact, he radiated tremendous spiritual charisma. I will say both. I will say both of them. He was a good actor, and he did radiate tremendous spiritual charisma. He was a man there with a long beard. He had sparkling eyes. He spoke in a language that no one understood, and, uh, he, you know, and he... And he knew how to run the crowd. He knew how to run them with his hand, with song. And that attracted a lot of people to Lubavitch. Uh, today, I don't think they have. I don't think that they have much to sell. I mean, they have people who are interested in mysticism. So they give them a, a BS story that they're mystics. Of course, they're not mystics. Chabad never was mystics. Chabad was philosophers, but not mystic. I mean, Alter Rebbe was a rabbi philosoph. You know, I mean, Alter Rebbe was a mystic too, but the Hasidim were mystics and mystic at all. I mean, since it sells, since the Kabbalah Center and Madonna and other great Sidkaniyos like her are mystics, so Chabad has gotten into it too. They have a series of lectures about dreams. What is what is this? It's all baloney. It's 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 put out by 770. They market this stuff of whatever sells. If if uh, nudism in the United States becomes popular, Chabad will sell that. They'll sell whatever is popular, but the Rebbe, they don't have anymore. They don't have the Rebbe. But it, it, this is an aside discussion. The simple thing is that hundreds of people still come to Crown Heights, and many of them are, are, are from, you know, Memtes Shari Tuma. They're coming from, from backgrounds. As one person told a friend of mine, a Lubavitcher friend of mine, when he was talking to him, Shidduch, he said, Rabbi, uh, I, I appreciate your, your giving me a shidduch, but, you know, I was part of the sexual revolution. You need to know that. And this is not going to do for me. And, you know, it's true. People are part of sexual revolutions. People are part of drug revolutions. People are part of countercultures. Um, they bring all of their baggage with them to Crown Heights. So is it a wonder that, that a good part of Crown Heights youths are off the derech? It's not a, it's not a wonder at all. Only a person like the Rebbe could convince these Hasidim, his idiot Hasidim, who he wanted barefoot and pregnant, so to speak, that they could go to Alaska and to Hawaii and their Saviva would not affect them. This goes against everything the Gemara says. It goes everything against everything the Shulchan Aruch says. It goes against everything that Judaism said. You need to live in a Jewish Saviva. But the Rebbe was po more powerful than the Gemara. He was more powerful than Pirkei Ovos. He was more powerful than anything. So they, they have convinced themselves and convinced other people that they can go to, um, to uh, Miami Beach w w with its hedonistic culture, and they can live there. 
and they and it won't affect them. You know what? Let me say it. Sitting in Miami and seeing naked women does affect you. It does. So, you know, it does affect you. That's 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 true. I don't care what you know the Lubavitcher Rebbe said because he didn't know what was going on. He never left his Dalit Amas. Maybe if the Rebbe actually took a trip to places like New Haven and he took a trip to other places and he saw what was going on, you know what? He may have changed his mind about the whole business. But he sat in New ha- in in uh, New York in 770. He hardly ever left, and if he left, it was to the airport or to Gan Yisrael or wherever. But he never left. And you know, and you know what? Maybe finally the Rebbe didn't care. I don't. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. But you know, we all know that the Square Rebbe and the Satma Rebbe banked hundreds of millions of dollars to separate themselves from America. I mean, how much, how much money did Rabbi Torsky and Square Rebbe spend to build New Square? How much money did he go out and spend all night long going to uh, Jews asking them for money? And, and finally, he died at a fairly young age out of, out of all of this. And the Satma Rebbe is very similar, and other people too. And even if they didn't build settlements outside of uh, Brooklyn, they're trying their best in Borough Park and um, and in Williamsburg and wherever else it is. Lubavitch is just the opposite. Bring them in. Bring all these people in. Jewish, not Jewish. Who cares? And the same thing with Shluchim. Oh, you're, you're a shliach. You're a shliach in, in Antigua. You're a shliach some other island in, in, in the Caribbean that the only people who are there are, are, are hedonists. Fine. Hedonists need Torah too. Okay, good. So you know what I have to say? It's Tishabov, and I'm not going to say something. But the leader of the movement, and I said this in one of our last podcasts, he should have gone on Shlichus himself. Why did he send out other people? He should have gotten up and gone on Shlichus in uh, Kansas City or in Tucson or in um, Houston. Why not? He didn't even want to move from Crown Heights to Borough Park. That's correct, because uh, in Borough Park, if he lived there, he'd have to deal with other Rabbonim, he'd have to deal with other Rabbeim, he'd have to deal with other Machers, and he wanted to be the kingfish. He wanted to be the only Macher. So he stayed in Crown Heights, that's fine. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, Crown Heights was not the problem. The problem was importing thousands of um, unvetted, if I can use that fancy word, unvetted people into Crown Heights every weekend, into their bedrooms and into their living rooms and into their kitchens. Um, and these people had an influence. And anyone who, who believes that there is no influence doesn't understand human psychology and, more importantly, sociology. And, you know, and the Rebbe was an engineer. He was not a psychologist. He was not a sociologist. He understood engineering. He did understand numbers. That uh, And he asked uh, some shluchim, how many Shabbos candles did you distribute today? 400, fantastic. But what does it mean? Did he ever ask, vos mentos as migit ashiksa a Shabbos candle? Vos mentos. It means nothing. It means nothing. But he never asked those questions because for all his genius, he was not a psychologist, and he was not a sociologist. 
He didn't understand the way dynamics of communities and dynamics of, of, of human, the human mind. Well, as, as I, come on. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. What? I don't want no, to stop you. And many of the, no, I, I think many, how many of Shluchim have wandered away in different ways? Many. I don't know how many. I'm not going to say how many, but more than a few. 30 years ago, you could hardly name a shlichus, a place where the shliach had wandered off the path. Today, you can name many. And I'm not talking about criminal activity. Criminal activity is a different subject. Criminal activity of, um, you know, money wandering is a different subject. I'm talking about moral and ethical, you know, well, not really ethical, but moral behavior. You know, there's more than more than one shliach. And many of these people... You know, someone uh, just sent me a, a picture of a PR picture of Chabad of uh, St. Louis, I believe it is. And he, the shliach is not wearing a jacket. And uh, fortunately, his wife is dressed sneistic, that I will say. Um, that's the last barrier so far in Chabad. Many of the women still are dressing sneistic, although people complain about it, but whatever. Uh, but he's surrounded by a group of people, women in shorts, women in uh small skirts, men with, uh, who, who, you know, in undershirts and t-shirts. And the, the, the caption is something like, we're building a community of medical professionals. Of course, you have to put in medical professionals because that's where the money, the money's coming from, the medical professionals. Uh, we're building a empty nesters. See, they've, they've caught on all to the catchphrases of hipster society, empty nesters, and they have others, they've caught on to catchphrases. But why doesn't the shliach tell um, these people who he really is? That he doesn't sleep with his wife two and a half um, weeks during the month? That he doesn't touch his wife, maybe more of that? Why doesn't he tell them that? Why doesn't he tell them all that his wine has to be covered because he's even scared that a non-Jew will look at it? Why doesn't he tell them what he really believes in? Why is he a faker? Why is he just a phony? Ah, but that's what Chabad in America is. It's just phonyism. It's just they're selling a product that doesn't exist. They claim to be hip. They all think of themselves as hipsters. They really believe that the hipsters out there see them as fellow hipsters. Come on. Come on, Rabbi. The hipsters are not stupid. They all went to college. They understand that who you guys are with your beards and your yarmulkes and your women wearing dresses down to their ankles. They got it. They got it. You're fooling no one. Well, uh, here in, in Boston, in a town that is dying, uh, on Tishabaf and off Tishabaf and any any day of the week. They they printed Tanya in Logan Airport. And of course, it's what the Ramash did is oriented the whole movement towards this PR six. And as long as as long as a picture uh, even even I don't know what the printing of the Tanya is, but is those events which are pure PR, and by the way, public relations, the good product, you don't need to advertise it. It's like a, 
Tesla cars, they don't have advertisement. And they don't have advertisement with Dafka because Elon Musk said, it's a good product. It doesn't need to be advertised. It sells without advertisement. It's just the opposite in Chabad. It's all PR because down under, the product is the product is, is stinks. So they 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 latch on to those PR sticks gimmicks like printing Tanya in Logan Airport, picture taken, uh, a little crowd assembled, publicized and called live, and that's the end of it. It has no meaning for what we are talking about, which is the salvaging well, of, of the jury in this country. I mean, Chabad, I think, has realized, um, I think those shluchim who are in touch with themselves and with reality have realized that American Jewry cannot be saved. They realize that most people are intermarried and more people will get intermarried. So the idea is let's get their money at least. Like Bizas Mitzrayim, let let's get their money, you know, uh, and that's what it's all about. Well, you know, the doctor, Doctor uh, Feinberg, he's intermarried. His wife is a goya. His children are goyim, but let's get his money. Let, let, let's get him for fifty grand every year. You know, it's the same thing. It's all over the place. You know, it's all. They're not doing anything in terms of. Um, I I don't know what can be done. You know, I don't claim that I'm an outreach worker, and I don't claim that I'm a shliach, although every Tom, Dick, and Harry in Chabad claims that they're a shliach, even though most of them don't don't know, can't read Hebrew. Um, but, you know, it, it, what, what Chabad needs to do is go back to the Freyadika Rebbe, to, to the Rayats. The Rayats started day schools, and he started day schools in New England that had an English department. And I was a student in such school and that had co-ed classes because the Rayats was a pragmatist. He knew who he was dealing with. He was not going to be able to get American Jewry of that time of the 1950s and late 40s. They weren't going to go to a school that would teach no English and that would uh, and that and he couldn't afford financially to have separate classes. Now, what does that have to do with today? Today, instead of Shlichus, Chabad needs to establish the finest day schools in all large cities, schools that are co-ed, that have a good English department, that don't talk about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And these schools don't necessarily even have to be Jewish. They have to have some magic formula of getting those Jews who are still halachically Jews and I would even add, although they're going to jump on me for saying this, even those Jews who have converted through conservative rabbis, we can reconvert them to go to such schools. Because this is the way of getting people interested in Judaism. The children are interested. They bring it back home. But the Chabad houses are bullshit. Excuse me. I mean, we're not. The FCC isn't covering this, so I can use the word. But that's what they are. They're one-shot deals. A guy comes in, you know, you dance with him, you give him a shot of whiskey, and, and it's, it's meaningless. I mean, it's meaningless. They need, but the people running Chabad, one man who's running Chabad is 90 years old. He's older than Biden. 
and he's their leader. He's their uh, managerial leader. And his assistants aren't much younger. Why don't they get some people who are out in the field and brainstorm about what they need to do? And by the way, you know, I'm not looking for a job. I'm retired. I'm not looking for a job. But I am prepared to to share whatever insights I have about this, even though the job that I really want is Shlia Haroshi in Crown Heights, because Crown Heights needs a Shlia desperately. Desperately, they need a Shlia. So now Chabad has bought a house in Washington Heights near YU, near Yeshiva University, and they have a shliach to Yeshiva University. Now, I am not Yeshiva University, but were I the administrators of Yeshiva University, I would immediately uh, buy a brownstone on President Street and cry out and establish a YU house with shiurim about Rabbi Soloveitchik, about Torah Derech Eretz, about Torah Mada, bring down uh, academics. You know what? Something like that could destroy Lubavitch in five years. And you're too optimistic. You're too optimistic. Okay. They listen, weaken it, they would. Destroy it, nothing will destroy it. Because you know, um, there's still Lahab Dilalafdalos, still Nazis in Germany too, after after World War II. They're still there. And I say Lahabdil, I'm not to making a comparison. Um, but you know. But Chabad wants it one way. If you're a Brasilver Chassid and you come to 770 with the teachings of Rav Nachman, you're going to get thrown out and you're going to get a pail of shit spewed all over you. But you Lubavitchers can come to Satmark and come to any other group in the world and ask, not only ask, but get up there and speak the Rebbe Sichas. Why? What is it that makes you guys special? I don't know. I mean, uh, beats me, but, uh, you know, I feel like I'm talking, uh, you know, that I've said this before, which I probably have. No, you um, did. But, you know, but, no, but I think the two main points. Maybe in different ways you said it, but. I'll say two things. I have to repeat this. One, in what Chabad states its goals are, they are successful. In terms of, um, you know, just touching people with Judaism, they are successful. I'm not going to deny that. I, I live in reality, uh, like um, getting a guy to put on film once in his life, um, you know, sending out a box of shmur matzah to people. I think they're fairly successful. But what's the effect of that? Zero. That, that's all. It's a zero effect. The, uh, the second thing is I challenge any Chabad macher, uh, be it a shliach, an executive, or a wealthy person supporting Chabad. And those are the people I really would like to listen, who should listen to this podcast. Uh, people like George Rohr and his family and David Chase, if he's still alive. And if he's not alive, he'll, he can listen to me from Elma Emes. You know, I, I don't think the Chabad methods that they're doing have had any effect on intermarriage in the United States. No effect at all. Zero effect. Intermarriage is, as I like to use a Yiddish word, bushevet. It's raging and rampaging all through the United States, raging and rampaging like a fire, like the fires in, in Canada. And the smoke, just like the smoke is coming here, the smoke of this affects the Jewish relationship with Israel. I mean, Mr. Blinken is intermarried. Most of the people around Biden, the Jews there are intermarried. The same thing was true with the Jews around Obama. And, you know, why is Biden the way he is? 
I think one of the reasons is because most of the Jews around him can't stand Israel. I mean, uh, if he talks to the six Jews who are most important around him, uh, people like Adam Schiff and others, I mean, these people are pro-Israel. Give me a break. I mean, uh, the, the, even the people in New York, the congressman, I forgot his name, the, the, this overweight uh, buffoon. Um, um, you know, his wife may be Jewish. I don't know. But the only time he speaks about Israel is when he's running Nadler, for re-election. Nadler. His name is Nadler. Nadler. And, he, and he bamboozles the Hasidim and others because he, he sends money their way. And the, for Hasidim, it's all about money. It has nothing to do with any real issues. Of course, then they'll come out and say they're anti-gay uh, rights, they're anti-feminism. Well, if you really are, why don't you vote in a Republican? But that they won't do because they know a Republican will cut their programs and everything. So, uh, but you know, I have nice things to say about everyone. Um, but but it, it's important because the Jewish media is so lame. It, it's such a lame, especially the Orthodox media is so lame. It's important that someone say some of these things. I mean, not that it's going to help. It's not going to help. So my challenge to Chabad is, and I challenge them not out of hate, not out of hate, because I do think, um, you know, that they are the only organized effort in the world today to um, to bring Jewish identity to Jews. I mean, where are all the yeshivas? Where's a place like Lakewood? Probably has 7,000 students doing crap. You know, I, I called them up many times and asked them, can you send some guy here in Connecticut to teach Torah to people, to, to do Dachyomi? We don't do Connecticut. You know, what do you do? All you do is you exotic and pelts, you know, famous things, exotic and pelts. That's what they are. And the same thing is true with Mir and Israel has 15,000 students or something. What the hell? 15,000 students. You should have Mir, Bacharim and Yungalite in Russia, in, in, the, in America, all over the place, combating Chabad. And you know what the Torah tells us? Kina Sofrim Tarbe Chachma. You know, it, it, enmity and jealousy makes for more knowledge. And it's true, you know, but instead, all these other groups, and I don't care which group you name me, and I'll, and I'll name the institution that I worked for, for many years, why you, nothing. Why you does nothing for Kiruv, nothing to fight intermarriage, zero. They could establish a rabbinical college in Australia. They could establish a rabbinical college in South Africa. They could establish, even more importantly, rabbinical schools and yeshivas in England and in Russia and in Moscow. Nothing. Garnished. Zero. You know, again, YU has a good PR department and they put out uh, pictures of students visiting Russia for a month, of students going to Australia for three weeks. But all of that is nothing. What, what does that mean for 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 Nitzchias, as I, I'll use a word Chabad likes to use for Nitzchias for Jewish continuity it means nothing. So be, saying all of that, I now will take off my hat to Chabad because Chabad is the only movement that is dedicated to 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 um, for this cause. Of course, along the way, they've lost a lot of their honesty. Uh, you know, because a lot of it is all about money and a lot of it is just about cheap PR. Uh, but if they can get around that, if they can just get around the money and get around the cheap PR, especially the cheap PR, because that, that cheapens them in the eye of anyone in the United States who has 
any feeling of civility and of uh, being part of a, the genteel society, or as the Gemara says, the mitukonim shebehem, not 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 the lower classes. Um, their cheap PR is eats away at many people. So um, their their challenge should be to, um, as Richard Joel, the president of the YU, liked to say, to reimagine themselves, reimagine themselves, start an institute for shlichus. Uh, after two years of studying Gemara, that's enough. Two years, you have an institute for shlichus. You study pastoral psychology. You story. You study uh, other such things, and how, you study the state of American Jewry. I've met Chabad Shluchim who, who don't know what American Jewry is about. They have no idea that everyone's intermarried. They have no idea. I mean, they've spent their lives in Crown Heights or in Montreal, and they, they have no idea what, 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 what the reality on the ground is. Well, their challenge is to get with it. They need a high school program to study English. They need to know who the second president of the United States was. They need to know what the American political system is like. They need to know that the Civil War wasn't a war between Schwarz and Whites. They need to know a lot of these things, which they don't. And they need to know a little about math and science, uh, not to just project themselves as being instant uh, J. Robert Oppenheimers. Um, you know, there's a, they have a lot of room to study something about the secular society. And why? Is it because I like the secular society? No, it's because that's what all American Jews are. They're all overeducated. They all are people with advanced degrees. And in order to really deal with them, you put away your bottle of whiskey. Put away that Tito's vodka. Put it away. Learn something about the secular world. Learn about the reality. Learn about dating. Learning about taking tests. No yeshiva has tests. Lakewood has no tests. No yeshiva has any tests. People are astounded when I tell them that. These from people don't know what a test is. And 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 shiduchim, you never have to tell a girl, uh, Betty, I'm sorry, but it's not working out. You know, you never have to do that. The shachan does it for you. So you don't know what you don't know what these students in the college are going through with broken relationships, with studying for tests, with failing tests. You have no idea what this is all about. No, you don't know. All you know is buzzwords. Oh, I'm taking the MCATs. You know, the Chabad Shlia, like I remember a Chabad Shlia saying, uh, how's your, talking to a professor, how's your class going? Uh, you know, my class is very good, he says. His class, his class is not a university class. His class is a class in the evening teaching uh, whatever, Hasidus. I mean, it's all baloney. These people are, are, are because none of them want to sit down and do the hard thing. The hard thing is learning about life and learning about the life of the people they supposedly are going to impact on. And they don't know the first thing about them. And maybe a few shluchim whose parents were uh, who are much more um, efficient and much more attuned to reality. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not. But you know, you meet shluchim who went to Ole Torah, they don't have a high school diploma. And what do they have to offer? A bottle of Tito's, and uh, and and a uh, uh, you know a pail of chalant, and, that's, uh, and then they can divrei Torah that seven seventy sends out every uh, Thursday night. Well, yeah. I I, I, I have a, I, I have a suggestion. I think um, 
ultimately what religion is all about is to take a moral stand. But because of the built-in uh, Chabad uh, service of the power, and his important thing is it doesn't matter what power it is. It could be left-wing power, it could be right-wing power, like Shemtov. Hey, Trump, Trump is the president, he, he, he celebrates Trump. Biden is the president, he celebrates Biden. It's, it's, it's a, no matter what the power is politically, they service it equally. And they pride themselves that they quote unquote, they don't take a political stand. But I said, in order to be authentic, you have to take political stand, especially today in the country that is being swept by woke religion. If you take if you don't take a political stand, what exactly you stand for? I mean, the whole appeal for Chabad in Russia, because uh, it negated uh, the communist power, it opposed communist power, and that that's moral uh, moral appeal, moral point is 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 what what is good about Lubavitch. But today it's not like that. I mean, in 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 Russia, they ready to align themselves with Putin and the worst. Uh, the most corrupt and evil people. You can't you can't have a religion that doesn't take a political stand. And today, it's not only a political stand; it's a moral stand. When when you stand up against a trans culture, a trans cult, and woke religion, you ultimately showing that that your own religion is is does matters and it's important to you I, I agree with you but i will add i think one reason that chabad and other hasidic groups are the way they are the way you're describing and that i'll include skvir especially uh but and i think other groups too are the same way you're describing is because they don't understand the American political system. Had they gone to high school and studied civics 101 and 102, they would understand that presidents change every year, that there, we have a two-party system, we have um, you know a tripartite government with the courts, and, and they don't understand that. They're still dealing in a system of uh, Franz Josef, uh, that there was an emperor, and the emperor was all powerful. Now they don't know, and they don't care, and they, you know, because they never studied this. They don't know. I really wonder whether Beryl Lazar knows who Kerensky was. I mean, uh, I'll give fifty dollars to Chabad of Russia if someone can pop pop question to Beryl Chief Rabbi Beryl Lazar if he can tell me who Kerensky was. You know what? I tend to doubt it. I tend to doubt that the Chabad Shluchim oh, in he's, Russia... He's, he's not Russian, he's Hungarian. What? He's not Russian, he's Hungarian. Well, he's, exactly. He's You're proving my point. Yeah. You're proving my point. At least the Chabad Shluchim are American, so they know George Washington was. But all the Chabad Shluchim, there's not... How many Chabad Shluchim in Russia are Russian? 5%? 10%? You know, they're all foreigners, Amer Israelis, Americaners. That's all. Import, export, levyoff, shmevyoff, mimach, gelt. That's why they're all there. You know, 
you know, and does anyone do any of these characters understand what Russia is? The, the, the concept of Russia, of authoritarian rule, of what communism, they don't understand it. I don't claim I do either. But am I am I a rabbi in Moscow? No. You know, am, am I a, a man who's pissing the Mizokhtin Yiddish at Pishtenain Temple with uh, Putin? No, that's not me. But if you are, it behooves you to spend some time reading some books or talking to some people who understand that. And these people don't. And the, Ameri- the Americans don't either. Because you know what? They don't understand the American political system. I, I will say this because I'm an equal opportunity hater. I've always said this. Rav Shach, uh, all of many years ago, was sitting and uh, screaming about something. I don't remember whatever. And it was clear he didn't understand the American political system. To him, the president in 1978, whoever that was at that time, Reagan, Schmagen, I don't know. To him, the president was like the king. He was like Tsar Nicholas II or or, or uh, uh, Franz Joseph Yorimodo. I mean, you know, he, he didn't understand that presidents come and go, that Heinz is a Dormorgan is a Gepatert. I mean, you know, they didn't, he didn't understand that. May I say this with all respect? But again, Rav Shah didn't claim to be uh, to sit there in the UN and give advice to, um, you know what, the Lubavitcher Rebbe did understand it. But he wanted his Hasidim barefoot and pregnant. That's what he wanted. He didn't want them to know too much because, you know, Hasidim knew too much and they had a secular education. Um, you know, who knows what they would do after, uh, you know, about in terms of their own relationship to him. And I posit that Hasidus, the way it developed um, by 1820s and 1830s, could not stomach an educated class. I mean, Hasidus is based on having thousands of people who don't know anything about the real world, who don't know anything about science, don't know anything about history, don't know anything about politics. And that is the case about most people in Borough Park and most people in Crown Heights and most people in uh, Williamsburg and in Muncie. They don't know the first thing about what what I'm talking about. Primaries, the president comes and goes, the political system here. They don't know what you're talking about. Ask them who Woodrow Wilson was. Ask them who Teddy Roosevelt was. Fragmir Bacherim, as my parents would say. You know, I, you know, they can, you know, in Lubavitch, it's even worse because they don't even know who their own rebels were. Ask them who Rev. Shmari Gorari was, and they'll say, hmm, wasn't he the rebel secretary in 1955? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, in it's it's just becoming... The, the bigger idiot you are, the closer you were to the Rebbe, because the Rebbe didn't want anyone who knew anything around him. Anyone who knew anything was not to be around him. You know, so uh, there were people in Lubavitch who did know the score. There's no question about it. And there still are. I don't doubt it. But these people, for a, for a short while, the Rashag's successor was Rabbi um, Schusterman from California. And he was hounded out. Hounded out. By, by other Lubavitch um, power forces in Crown Heights. They hounded him out. They made his life miserable. Why? Because Schuster was a guy who knew the score. He was a, you know, I don't want to say Veltbacher because that implies not religious, but he was a guy who uh, knew what he was doing. And he, they obviously saw it that he would be a good fundraiser and he would be a good administrator. So they had to get rid of him because he posed a threat to their hegemony over Shabbat. 
you know, and uh, so I, I agree with what you're saying. I agree 100 percent about, um, you know, uh, Putin and, and Bar- I mean, it, 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 you know, what can I say? The Chabad has taken the wrong turn. It's taken a wrong turn. They need to get rid of the PR. They need cheap PR. They need to stop the cheap fundraising. And they need to set themselves what their goals are. And one goal has got to be to fight intermarriage. And right now, I don't see Chabad in any way being effective in uh, stopping intermarriage. I mean, maybe you do. I don't see it. I mean, I see intermarriage as I used the Yiddish term before, Bushevet or or and I can come up with another 100 Yiddish terms. Um, But... um, to stop the intermarriage? No way. To, the only way you're going to stop intermarriage is this. I'll agree with Chabad. Those Jews who are not, who are already intermarried, are lost. They're lost. But to even, I was approached by a Chabad rabbi, not a Chabad shliach, by a Chabad rov, and he asked me to ask a question to Rabbi Herschel Schachter. I, I can use his real name, who's the Rosh Hakolah of Wayu and the Posek of renown. And to, since, uh, you know, I did live uh, in close proximity to Rabbi Schechter, although I, in no way him, him, was I his, uh, in any way was I um, connected with him. You know, he was my neighbor, Shachin Tov, as they say. Um, to ask him whether a woman who's married to a goy, a Jewish woman who's married to a goy, uh, should go to the mikveh. And uh, so my response was, I, I understand, Rabbi, that you're not asking me and I'm not a Rav, uh, but, you know, to me, as a Jew, uh, anyone who's married to a non-Jew, that's the end of Judaism. It's And, and no, he says it's not one of the Tariyag mitzvahs. I mean, first of all, it is. I mean, a, a Jew is not allowed to marry or to be bold, to have intercourse with a non-Jewish woman. So, so, so this is the opposite, and a Jewish woman isn't allowed to do it with a man either. So, first of all, it is, you know, of course, you can come up with a million, as one guy told me, the more you know, the more you can drink. Um, but that's not even my point. My point is that it's well, it's, we all know, sociologists and psychologists know that intermarriage is the end of Judaism. It doesn't matter whether it's a Tariyag mitzvah or not. You know, by the way, you know, wearing a yarmulke is nowhere in the Shulchan Aruch. It's nowhere anywhere. But it's become a litmus test now if you're an Orthodox Jew, whether that's right or wrong. But it's become a litmus test whether one is an Orthodox Jew. Do you wear a yarmulke? So whatever. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't agree with it. But, you know, am I going to fight City Hall, as they say? No. And it's the same thing with intermarriage. Intermarriage is the last step out of Judaism. So his idiotic question is whether a woman who's married to Goy has to go to Mikvah. You know, let her divorce her husband first and then get remarried, and then she'll ask the question. But right now you're sitting around and you're with a Goy, and he's, excuse me for using the word, um, well, I won't use it. He's doing you, uh, he's doing you, and you want to know whether you could go to Mikvah? I told the Rav, I told the Slobavitcher, you ask Rabbi Schechter, I'll give you his telephone. I'm not going to make myself a fool. So did there are many Slobavitchers who Did he ask? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know and I don't care. I'm not involved in that. You know, um, there, there are many Lubavitchers because they are aware of the um, 
reality on the ground to a certain extent, not not completely. Um, they know that almost everyone is intermarried. So they're trying to find Dreadloch, you know, intermarried. No, it's not the end of the world. It's not one of the targets. Or, or as he said to me, no, I, I miss, I well, in, in, him. You know, in, in Russia, that, in, in Russia, it's much worse than, than here in America. Because I'm, there I'm you, you, sure. you, you have uh, entire schools which are, which are basically non-Jewish. Right, right. Well, you know, I have something to say about that, too. But um, I'm sure you have something uh, to say about it. Well, you know, uh, what's going on now with uh, Chabad raising money in Poland and uh, for Ukrainian Jewish refugees? How many of these people are Jewish? I mean, uh, you know, if you're going to tell me you're raising money for Ukrainian refugees, okay, then you know where I'm sending my money. I'm sending my money to help Ukrainian refugees. Okay, fine. At least you're honest. But when you're telling me that this is for Jewish refugees, how many of these people are Jewish? I posit that 80% are not halakhically Jewish. And for a Hasidic organization called Shabbat to do this is, is outrageous. You know, whatever happened to 30 or 40 years ago, most day schools in America demanded proof uh, before they would accept children of Russian refugees uh, that they're Jewish, unless they were uh, clearly Jewish. Like, you know, I knew a few uh, uh, women in, uh, in YU who spoke a beautiful Yiddish. I think they were from Carpatho, Russia. I mean, there was no question that these two sisters were a thousand percent Jewish. That, you know, no question about it. And there are other such people, too. I'm not saying they're the only ones. But, you know, a lot of people, no, they, they weren't Jewish. And in those days, there were, now Chabad doesn't care anymore. Jewish, not Jewish. I mean, it's all about money. It's all about money. It's all about money in Russia. It's about money in uh, in the United States. It's about money wherever they are. It's all about money. Well, after all, a shliach and most Chabad, many Chabad people are shluchim. Where's the shliach going to make a living? You know, uh, you know, shliach dachmachan eleven. Chasidisha yungerman dachmachan eleven. So he makes a living whatever way he can. You know, some sell drugs, some sell this, some are malamdim, that's fine. But, and some are collecting money on behalf of people who aren't Jewish. And, you know, if the joint was doing this or organizations like Hayas or others, I don't know if Hayas is still in business, were doing it, fine, okay, they're not orthodox organizations, they're not religious. But an organization that claims to be a direct descendant of the Rayats, what would the Rayats say? In 1925, what would the Rayat say? Would he start yeshivas in Neville where half student body were, were, were non-Jews? I mean, it's a good kasha. I challenge any Lubavitcher out there in Crown Heights to give me any answer. Would the Rayat start a yeshiva in, in, in Neville or in Kremenchug or wherever where half the student bodies are Nitkin Yidin? No, he wouldn't. But today it doesn't matter anymore because it's all about money. You know, as much, you know, maybe some people will accuse me of being paranoid schizophrenic and I don't, I don't care what they, I mean, they they get a hold of the, um, what's that book called that psychiatrists have and they get a hold of code numbers. From, and from? They'll call you, they'll call you, you mean, number, they'll call you. You mean from? You're a, what's from? No, the psychiatry, this psychologist. I'm, I, I don't know, maybe, yeah. I'm not sure what you're talking yeah. about. No, there is a book that says that if you're a schizophrenic, you're a 101. A paranoid schizophrenic is 102. I don't forgot what the name of the book is, you know. And um, 
Someone on uh, Mental Blog called me that. Why? Because I was the only person on Mental Blog who said some good things about Chabad, just like I just did in the last half an hour. And I said many bad things just so I did. Because I can uh, parse things. Nothing is black and white in this world. Chabad believes that everything is black and white. Either you're with us or you're against us. I forgot who coined that. Is that Lenin or is that, um, I don't know. You're with us or you're against us. So if you're not ready to go out and say, Rabbi Schneerson was arguably the greatest rabbi in the last 500 years, and then you reach for your checkbook and you cut a check to your shliach for $5,000, you're with us. But if you don't do that, you're against us. Of course, the same person who says Rabbi Schneerson was the greatest rabbi in the last 500 years, I challenged one guy like that. And I said, can you name me another rabbi? Yeah, yeah, you know, you even out of K Jr., even out of K Jr., now that he hangs out with Jews to to protest his alleged anti-Semitism or whatever, he said he's he went uh, on the oil and he says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the greatest rabbi in the last century, but they, they already they already you know put him up to it, you know. You know, you know the, what? Talk, talking I'm, about talking about conspiracy theories, you know. Yeah, I mean, a goy, a goy, I can excuse, number one. And number two, a man who's mentally ill, I certainly can excuse. You know, like uh, the uh, Gemara says, someone who's, uh, you know, is, is driven, you know, the rabbis uh, forgive him. You know, uh, what, RFK? I mean, I was supporting him until he made that statement. Uh, uh, you know, but, you know, since then, I realize he's, the man is crazy. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying he's completely off his rocker, but, you know, he's not a man who's, uh, as to use the Hebrew phrase that Rabbi Shach used to use, Roy Lan Hoga. He's not fit or appropriate for a leadership. That, that's all. I mean, you know, I, you know um, so it's, listen, the Goyim have bamboozled because RFK can't name you another rabbi either. Uh, who's, who can, if I asked RFK, so you, so it's the greatest rabbi, who, who, rabbi RFK, RFK, who's the second greatest rabbi? Mm-hmm. No answer, because no one knows, because American Jewry is so assimilated, so fakak. Shmoli Boteach, Shmoli Boteach. Yeah, right, Shmoli Boteach. He's a rabbi like I'm a rabbi. Shmuley Bateyev's rabbinical uh, credentials are like my rabbinical credentials. I mean, Riftika Rov. You know, you're, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but yours are much better. Well, maybe, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, but, but this is, you know, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not even against Chabad. I'm not against them. I'm against their methods and, and what they've gotten into, which is just cheap PR and fundraising. You know, they would be a much more powerful organization if they draw, I think you said that a while, uh, half an hour ago. If no, they dropped they, all of this. Yeah, yeah, of course. They they need to go the opposite, inwards. They need, what, what you spoke about, uh, uh, what you wrote in one of the comments uh, to the posts, that what's, what we lost uh, in Holocaust, it was Aida Shagas. And there's no, there's no like Jewish street. And it's very important. It's very important to raising children. And it's very important to communal life. Uh, even in New York, uh, there's sometimes, you're not sure like if 
if the real Yiddish gas exists. Uh, so they instead of going to places with one Jew and sending pictures back home, they need to go inward and create a, a one community, one community that has Yiddish gas. Absolutely. That, that, you know, that, yes. It, it, it's, you know, the Lubavitch claims to be the biggest uh, user. Hello? Yes, yes. Yeah, the biggest user of modern technology. So, you know, I am not. But modern technology includes the internet. There is no need for a shliach in a city of 100 Jews. There's no need for a rabbi in a city of 200 intermarried Jews. You can appoint someone living in a nearby large city as representative of that town. He has an internet email. He has a website. He is available. He comes into that city once every three months to see what the hell is going yeah, on. Yeah, but it's not, it's, then, not a, it's not about the Jews in those towns. It's about uh, ability to suck up whatever leftover money they have in, the, in that particular location. It's true. It's true. But uh, that isn't always working for them either. You know, uh, you know, I mean, they try doing it and, uh, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but whatever, you know, um, the problem is before what I said about the money. They have thousands, a huge birth rate, and many of them have nothing to do. So they have to become shluchim. And a shliach isn't automatically um, making an income stream either. So you have to do it by hook or crook, you know. And so uh, one one way of doing it is, uh, as you said, um, you find an old shul that's dying and you uh, finish it off. And maybe you'll burn it down. Like uh, I suspect, I mean, uh, may, they, may God forgive me for saying this, but maybe how, what happened to the old shul in Moscow? Under communism, under the worst conditions of communism, that shul stood. It's made out of wood. But under the worst conditions of communism, Stalin, KGB, and Kavada, these people weren't, weren't idiots like the Lubavitchers make them either. They knew what was going on in that shul. They knew that it was the center of Chabad activity. Yet the shul was never burnt down. The shul survived all of it. Suddenly, after 1990, Russia gets free and the shul burns down. Come on. It, 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 it begs an explanation. And in the United States, every year, how many Chabad houses have fires? I think more than all conservative, reform, and Orthodox synagogues together. Uh, maybe no it's com just no comment. No comment. Maybe I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm just saying maybe it's coincidence. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe the Abishad doesn't like Chabad houses. So H Ochla. Maybe he sends out a fire to um, maybe, but usually these houses are then rebuilt. Tishabif, Tishabif, hello, hello, Tishabif. Bus? Tishabif. Tishabov? Yeah. We're speaking in Tishabif. Okay, you know, well, you know, um, I, I'm not against Chabad because I've come to realize that they are the only organization with all their warts, and they have many, with all their warts, the only organization who give a damn about Jews outside of seven major areas in the United States and Israel. And um, 
What are those seven? Lakewood, Rockland uh, County, Muncie, no, no, um, uh, Williamsburg, Crown Heights, Borough Park, Flatbush, and and I uh, will throw in the rest of New York City, Upper West Side, wherever. But no one cares. I mean, does anyone care if, um, you know, I don't know, if a Jewish student in um, University of Cincinnati is there an Orthodox rabbi on campus? Does anyone care about it? No. Does anyone care? You know, I mean, there's hundreds of places like this. And, and I'll give them credit for that. What credit is due, I will give them credit. Their, their methods are, are, to me, thousand percent wrong, but um, their aims and their goals deserve to be uh, replicated by other Jewish groups. I mean, why is it that Neri Israel isn't doing anything uh, to help Jewish continuity? Why, you know, most of these, you know, very little. I mean, uh, a few yeshivas can claim to be doing very little. I mean, maybe Chavatayim in Queens does a little. But most yeshivas do almost nothing. They have thousands of students. And and there are plenty of Jews, like even in New Haven, even with Chabad here, and even with um, Yale. You know what? There's room here for 16 other shluchim, you know, if they had a financial support. Uh, Now, that's something that I'm not asking uh, yeshivas to do. but. and the, and the shliach doesn't need to be someone who lives in the city. It could be someone who visits from New York one day a week. And, you know, you do uh, first you do canvassing, then you see what, what needs to be done. You know, but no, no one even tries. Of course, in their newspapers, in the Ated Neman and in Hamodia and other such papers, it's full of their cheap PR because they've learned from Chabad how to advertise their nothingness. They do nothing, but they keep on writing articles about how great they are and how they send out people here, there. Well, by the end of the day, you realize that it's all baloney, that they're talking about uh, suburbs of Lakewood, suburbs of Philadelphia. You know, um, fine. You know, if that makes them feel good, you know, I can't force them to do anything. But, you know, if they believe in God, they will have something to answer after 120 years. I don't want to be a mochiach. I don't want to be this person. But, uh, you know, there, there are 6 million Jews in America. Yes, many of them are intermarried, of course. But many are not. Some still are not. And some modern Orthodox Jews, by the way, can use this tremendous shot in the arm. Um, you know, I'm not here to say I can use a shot in the arm. I, I, when I call up Lakewood to asking to send someone here, I'm talking about myself. I'm doing it for myself. Um, but no, but no, nothing, zero. New Haven, Hartford, um, Bridgeport. Now we've just talked about 70 or 80,000 Jews. Wow, nothing. You know, tack on Boston, tack on, uh, uh, you know, uh, Worcester, Gornish, tack on Springfield, Gornish. Talking about another who knows how many Jews. Tack on Syracuse, Albany, Rochester, Buffalo. What are we talking about? Half million Jews already. And these people sitting in Lakewood in their fancy homes with their late model cars, trading on the stock market, but they think they're God's chosen people. You know what? When I think of Lakewood and I think of the people like them, I become a Lubavitcher. 
I've become a Lubavitcher at that time because for all their warts in Lubavitch, at least some of them are trying to do something. And I'll throw in YU. What does YU do? Go on. YU has a huge cadre of Talmudic Chachamim that they've produced in the last 20 years who could become Russia yeshivas, and many of them, most all of them are secularly educated as well. They could become a cadre of starting rabbinical schools in, in at least the three Anglo-Saxon countries, Australia, South Africa, and England. England does not have a rabbinical college. Believe it or not, there's no school in England training modern Orthodox rabbis. Nothing. Where's YU? There are many, many young men who've gotten smicha and have learned in their kollel and and um, are also secularly educated who are under underused right now. Because how many Rosh Hashivas can YU use? I mean, 15, 20, you know, many of them. I know many of them myself. You know, you send them to, give them challenges. You send them to Australia, you send them to South Africa. And this is a certain fault, is the Russian yeshivas. The Russian yeshivas should be the people who should challenge their Talmudim. You know, uh, Joe, I want you to go to South Africa for five years. But it, it's really more of a challenge for the administration of Wayu because you need money for this and you need an infrastructure. But um, no way, nothing. And, and the former president of Wayu. Um, had a lot of the art. He created something called the Center for the Jewish Future, which after now it doesn't exist anymore, did absolutely nothing. Has no accomplishments on its uh, CV. Absolutely zero. I challenged them to name me one thing it did um, that has any sort of um, posterity or posterity. Nothing. So, you know, that's that's when I become a Lubavitcher because, all right, you know, Taka. You know, Lubavitch has a lot of problems, but, um, you know, starting um, a Chabad They're trying. House, which They're trying. They are trying. They don't know, as they say in Yiddish, they basin it in the hand and the fist. They don't know what they're doing. They never went to college. They never went to high school. They don't know what they're doing. And they don't know who they're dealing with. And But, but they're trying. Now, how much more effective would they be if they started a school, whatever you want to call it, for Shlichus, two-year, three-year program with uh, with internships, and Shlichus need to be um, uh, no longer nepotistic. The idea of a shli- of Shlichus being nepotistic ad sof koladoros until the end of time is going to another thing that hurts Shlichus. When you take a look at Chabad House in Middletown, America, the director is Rabbi Laser Kaplun. The assistant director is Rabbi Shammai Kaplun. The, the director of the kindergarten is Mrs. Golda Kaplun. The director of adult education is Rabbi Henoch Kaplun. Come on, boys. America doesn't believe in nepotism. You've got to, you've got, you can't do this. But they don't care because it's all about money. Listen. And some people now believe some people believe that their families are holier than the Schneersons. Yeah, listen. They laugh so, at I, the so I, I get I get this email from a teenage girl. She's a daughter of a friend of mine. 
she's uh, fundraising for friendship circle. Okay. I send a little, a little check. Next thing I, I get a thank you letter from Levi Shemtov, executive director. Holy cow, I didn't know it was for Levi Shemtov. If I knew, I wouldn't would, would give nothing. All the Shemtovs. <laughs> all the Shemtovs, you know. There's one thing I heard from my grandmother. Oh, she, she, she told me when I said Shemtov. Oh, I remember they have a big, they had a big house. They had a big house. And the same as they uh, liked money 100 years ago, this family like, likes money very much today. Well, Gornis Tatsuk Gebitten, as they say in Yiddish. Um, I, will, I will say something that uh, Dor Shmini told me. Okay, um, we we couldn't we couldn't get for two hours without uh, we I we almost we almost did it like going through the whole podcast without mentioning Barry Gurari, but let's 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 make sure we we do mention him. When I mentioned the holy name of Shemto, he said in Yiddish. This he switched over to Yiddish, and he said, "There is a given a balagola in Rusland." So All these right. people, I don't know who they are, and I do believe, I personally believe in Yichus Atzmei, that that's a per, like uh, the square Rebbe Olam Shalom told me, that Yichus is like a zero, and it depends how many uh, numbers you put in front of it. And that, that uh, you know, that's, I believe in that. But uh, on the other hand, when these people present themselves with this newfangled term, Geja, you know, what does it mean, Geja? That uh, your grandfather spent six months in Tonkei Tamimim, big deal. You know what does what does that mean? It means nothing. You know, Geisha. They've created a new word, Geisha, and now there's also there's Palisha Geisha, and there's also Americana Geisha, and now I'll create a new Geisha, BT Geisha. There's about Shuva Geisha. <laughs> my elder said it was a BT. He's also Geisha, BT Geisha. So this <laughs> is all baloney. It's all more Lubavitch baloney. You know, it all shows a certain amount of resentment, in my opinion, by Russian Lubavitchers about that the Rebbe degraded them and the Rebbe didn't give them any uh, special respect, and which he should have, in my opinion, you know, because everyone is looking for a home. I was. I was looking for a home. And Lubavitch was, would have been my natural home, you know, uh, would have been my natural home. For many reasons, uh, but you know, I didn't find a home when I visited Lubavitch or I went to their school here. I found coldness. I found kaltkeit, and uh, instead of warmth, I found warmth generated by vodka. Warmth generated by um, uh, talk of the Rebbe. Warmth generated by uh, uh, hot cholent. But I've never found warmth in Chabad. I never. I found 770 as being a cold place. Called the eyes, you know. So I never found my place in Chabad. It wasn't my home, which was a tragedy. You know, I say it about myself. Um, and, and I'm sure other Lubavitchers felt the same way. After all, if someone's grandfather was Meser Nefesh for Yiddishkeit in Russia, I'm sure many of these people thought that they should get a little bit of, um, of respect. I mean, not to, I'm not saying they should be made king of England. 
but you know, but the Reb to the Rebbe, um, uh, you know, someone who's uh, a BT or something, or someone with money was more important. You know, uh, you know, and the important thing was being an avid Nella, being a um, slave of the Rebbe. So your your ratings on scale was all um, monitored by how the Iskashris was. I mean, uh, so, uh, you know, this is not my chief, this is my personal issue. It's not my, has nothing to do with the Chabad as an organization. No, it's important my one because, it's important one because it speaks to the culture, which is, which is the heart of the matter. Well, the culture was an abandonment of Russian Jewish culture, of white Russian uh, northern Ukrainian Jewish culture, complete abandonment of it, um, and, and, and adoption of a pragmatic American culture, which if I needed pragmatism and I needed American, what do I need Chabad for? I can just join a fraternity and um, become a frat boy. What do I need Chabad? Or go to YU for that matter, you know, and become an American. Um, we were looking, and I'm sure there are more than me, we're looking for a Hamisha plot. And, you know, there were lots of Hungarian Jews, thank God, who survived the war. And many of them who weren't Hasidim before the war, they were Ashkenazic Orthodox Jews, found their home in Satmar, in, in, in Pope, in, in other such, in Square, even though Square is Ukrainian, but the Hasidim are all uh, Hungarian. They found their home because these Hasidic groups were dedicated to preserving the regional culture. That's what they're dedicated to. And I can attest to that. I'm no expert about but um, I, I've been friendly with numerous Satmar Hasidim, and I see they have the Eastern European culture. They've got it down. Lubavitch, no. Lubavitch, no. Lubavitch, as a matter of fact, there was no place for the Eastern European culture in, in Chabad. It, it, it uh, you know, so I don't know. Um, but wow. you know, it's a, it's a complex thing. It's complex. You know, I don't want to. I, 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 to me, it's important. It's important. Chabad's work is important to me. Um, I just really wish that they they upgraded their um, their pay scale. They upgraded their their methods and what they're all about. Were, were upgraded. You know, oh, in terms man. of money. Oh, man. <laughs> in terms of cheap PR, as far as Russia goes, that's lost. That's gone. Um, no one is ever going to bring back um, Neville or uh, whatever these towns in Russia were, Dokshit, Stalina, uh, you know, I don't know the names of these. I forgot again. It's, it's not going to be brought back. I mean, although I saw something interesting on the uh, that on a Chabad website, I saw it, and it claimed that uh, people in Israel, the principal schools, were asking that the Kasket be brought back. Uh-huh. And once I read it, once I read it, I saw that it's another lie emanating from Chabad. This was a statement signed by non-Lubavitcher, Chedorim in Bnei Brak, to bring back the Kasket, but they didn't call it the Kasket. And what they meant is the little, we called it, a Pele Shehitl or Yiddish Shehitl that adults in Congress Poland wore and that children in Galicia wore. And they still do, like those are children do where we call that a casket. 
It's not a casket that Lubavitch. Lubavitch calls a casket something that Mendel Futafas wore, or we have pictures of Rav Cook, Oliver Sholem wearing a casket. We have pictures of the last uh, Nasi of the Dorshvi wearing a casket when he left Russia in 1929 uh, or 28. Uh, that's a casket. So for a minute, I, my hopes were high. Will Lubavitch return to its Russian origin and bring back the casket? But, but no, the casket is gone. And, you know, it will be gone. No one will bring back the casket because it doesn't beat having a nice head of hair, and uh, which is what most young Lubavitchers are interested in. No, I mean, in like, I, I, I saw pictures uh, uh, from 770 recently, and there's some bochrim there that they wear. It's not a casket, but it's a cap. And there's a few of uh-huh. them, so it must be. I don't know if those are Russian bochrim or French bochrim, but they did I've wear. I've seen it too. I don't make much of it, but I've seen it. I think you know it's. Um, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I've seen it. I agree with you. Uh, I think to some people, it's a way of not having your hat destroyed during the week. You know, not everyone can afford a borsalino, two borsalinos, and. Uh, you know, unless you're going to sit with your hat in 770, what the hell are you going to do with your hat? I mean, uh, I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine, Lubavitcher, and he, he he said the same thing that you know he walked to Shul in, uh, in 770 without a hat, and I knew immediately why because you know on Shabbos his hat would either be lost or destroyed. So uh, he was criticized by uh, I forgot who he told me criticized him some Lubavitcher um, bigwig for not w- walking to Shul without a hat. But you know, I don't blame them. I wouldn't uh, put on a two hundred fifty dollar hat and and just leave it in some chair or someplace in seven seventy and have it lost or stolen, or I don't mean literally stolen. I mean accidentally taken. Um, so a casquette is a good. You know, these hats that they wear are good uh, during the week. Are a good alternative. My question is why, while the rebel was alive, you never saw it. There's a lot but you the, see the, while the, the Rebbe... The, the, the Rebbe was all about uh, cutting the ties from Russia and from Europe. That's Never correct. mentioning any of it. While the Rebbe was around, you couldn't mention Kopus. You couldn't mention any other branch of Chabad. You couldn't mention Zalman Schneerson. You couldn't mention um, the Razor. You, you, the, you, not, in just the last few years, you have a whole book that an uh, uh, educated Lubavitcher in Israel put out about the other children in Tzemach You have its whole biography of the Razor. It's nothing special, but it's interesting. And it shows that the Razor was a modern guy. I'm surprised no one has written about this. I read through the whole book cover to cover, and I'm shocked that the guy who wrote it, uh, some uh, Georgian rabbi or uh, Lubavitcher, um, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, hide from the fact that the Razos used to be a modern guy. He was a modern person. He he uh, he was certainly not a um, spitz chabad, as the Rebbe coined the phrase. Um, it's interesting that while the Rebbe was alive, none of this could happen. None of this, zero. He had zero tolerance for any talk about Russia. But now that he he's gone, you know, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, yeah, you're right. You have Bacharim walking with pseudo casket and it's hard to get a casket it's hard to get a casket i mean uh i yeah. bought one in uh israel 1971 in the hat store across the street from the great synagogue in tel aviv i don't know if it was 100 percent a casket it was very close when i brought, wore it came back to america wearing it 
my father seized it and said, this is his. <laughs> and my father and my father wore it. It was no longer mine. And uh, <laughs> so it's okay with me, you know, but he, he took it from me and he said, does you mine? You know, and uh, because it really did look like a casquette, you know, um, except it was dark blue. It wasn't black. But um, uh, but the, you're right. The Rebbe tried doing away with anything to do with Eastern Europe and with uh, Russia. He, you know, he, he and he probably had his own reasons for that. First of all, he left. He left that world in 1929. So it, it was a world that he didn't. He was not machshid. He didn't think of it as any great importance. To him, the world of Berlin and Paris and maybe the, the Great White Way of Broadway were important, but not not um, not um, what a Borisov or Vitebsk. These towns weren't important. You know, when I see the various things that uh, were posted by uh, a great man about the work of um, of uh, Penn and his Talmudim, you know, posted on the internet by someone. Uh-huh. Um, when I see that, I ask myself, why didn't Lubavitch ever post similar things? I mean, now from looking at this, I get an understanding, abyssal fashtanda, what life was in, in white Russia, abyssal. And then, then when, when it was posted, the pictures of the famine in Leningrad, you know, I must admit that that hit me personally because my uncle uh, and his whole family died of starvation in Leningrad. And I looked at those pictures, you know, and, you know, I almost cried, you know, and it was the first time I sort of realized what it was, what, what it was like, you know. And listen, my uncle wasn't the only Lubavitcher in Leningrad to die of starvation. The Rashag's brother died. Thousands of Lubavitchers in Leningrad died. Of starvation. Did Lubavitch ever care about this? Did, 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 did the Rebbe ever mention this? Nothing. You know, it's garnished. It happens. Forget about it. You know, we have to go out to Berkeley. We need to go to Ann Arbor. We need to conquer, uh, you know, nudist camp. We need this. We need that. But you know, forget about the uh, Klimovich. He, he actually laughed at Klimovich when some guy asked him about a shirk. And he said, "Vasta, Valtruvi, Erger, via, 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 Klimovich, and some other town he mentioned." He laughed at it. Why? Because the Rebbe, the Rebbe himself wasn't from there. The Rebbe was, as they themselves used to write, from the great industrial city of Dnepropetrovsk. That's where he was from. Dnepropetrovsk was 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 not a shtetl. It was not in White Russia. It was a place. A refugee place for Jews from White Russia, from Jews in the Ukraine, from Jews from Galicia were there. It was an international city, so to speak. It wasn't a city like uh, Borisov or even a compact city like Vitebsk, where almost everyone was a uh, White Russian Jew. No. Nah. So what did the Rebbe care about these shtetlach? He didn't care about them. He had no. He had no. He had no. He had no. He didn't know what they were. He didn't know what to say in Yiddish. He didn't know You know, and why? I don't know why. I mean, the Rebbe could have gone to the yeshiva in Neville. No, but he wasn't there. He could have gone to other yeshivas, uh, underground yeshivas. No, 
He never even you know, stepped in, uh, in Lubavitch. Pardon? He never even stepped in Lubavitch. Right. Absolutely. So, so what? What? What was it? His concern about? You know, Mendel Futtefras came. He must Mendel. Mendel must have caught the Rebbe in a in a um, in a off moment when the Rebbe told him not to change his clothing. All right. You know, it was nice. Why did the Rebbe tell everyone else to change their clothing, or why didn't he protest when other Hasidim came? He didn't seem to care. You know. Uh, but uh, you know, fine. So Futafas, uh, you know, it was, it was fine. Remendel was like a. Um, don't get me wrong about what I'm going to say, but he was sort of the reverse of the scarecrow. He was the Rebbe put him up there to remind people of of what Chabad was. But uh, don't take it too seriously, because he was his own. That was one person. Uh, here's a Zecher Ladover. Uh, this is, you know, like my father saw Remendel the first time my father came back home and he said, you know, Isaiah Toiskas and a Chosid in the altar hang. All right, fine. So maybe the Rebbe was using that exactly for that purpose. He figured he can lasso in some more, uh, some more people who otherwise weren't impressed by the Torah Vadas boys who were in Lubavitch. I mean, uh, I don't know. Don't know. Don't know a lot. I don't know a lot. Okay, but, listen, uh, uh, we we run over time here, but I, I think yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it was tremendous. You know, I think it was tremendous podcast. Especially, yeah, I, I think I'll just I just want to say one last thing, and I just uh, since it is Tishabov, I think you know um, even despite yeah, I'll make it very short. Despite everything that we said here and the feelings and personal feelings, despite all of this, I I, I do. I mean, it, it is my hope that uh, I mean, Chabad straighten itself out and become a more positive force in Jewish life and, and uh, you know, uh, help uh, in what their stated goal is, uh, bring Mashiach. So. Amen. Amen. Okay, be well. Bye-bye.